Before the break, we, we spoke about the sort of basic IP rights and contractual position. Um, in the remaining three sessions, looking at that stack, we're going to be focusing on competition law, data protection, and the more most nebulous, perhaps the most important topic of all, information management. The next session is all about competition law and how regulators are now giving their attention to the perceived market power of data businesses in certain sectors. Uh, our competition and regulatory associate, Rachel Eiley, and Ranit Kreisberger, um, a leading barrister from Moncton Chambers uh, in EU competition law, are going to assess how the regulators are shaping and scoping data markets and what practices are currently under scrutiny and why. Rachel and Renit will also look at the approach taken by the European and English courts in a number of landmark decisions on the competition law issues arising in the data arena. Um, and they'll be providing pointers to what this means for the future. So please welcome Rachel to the lectern. During this session, Ranit and I will consider some of the main questions arising from the competition law treatment of data rights and the approach taken by the courts and the competition authorities in this area. I will start by setting the scene and we'll look at the main issues surrounding access to data in competition law, the types of data that have been examined why data is often caught by competition law, how data markets are defined, and why this is important, and some thoughts about the future. Ronit will then talk us through the legal principles. So, what is the issue we are going to talk about? European competition law contains two fundamental prohibitions. Article 101 of the EU treaty prohibits anti-competitive agreements and restrictions, I won't go into that now because the focus of this session is Article 102, which prevents companies with a dominant position on a relevant market from abusing their market power by exploiting those they deal with or by excluding competitors. It is Article 102 that can sometimes be used to require a data holder to license its data on reasonable terms. And an example of this is the European Commission's ongoing investigation into how Standard & Poor's licenses the international securities identification numbers that identify US securities. I've included an example of an ISIN here for Apple. Standard & Poor's runs the QSIP Bureau, the US National Numbering Agency. As such, it has a monopoly over issuing US ISINs. The Commission suggests that ISINs are the only universal identifier for US securities. Without ISINs, securities cannot be exchanged because of international agreements that seek to prevent duplication and the loss of assets. This suggests that ISINs are essential for the day-to-day -day business of many financial institutions. The Commission's preliminary view is that Standard & Poor's has abused its dominant position by refusing to supply ISINs on reasonable terms and by charging excessive prices for them. First, by demanding a license fee not only from financial data vendors, but also from financial institutions 
which do not directly use Standard & Poor's ISIN database, but obtain ISINs from multiple other sources. Also, by imposing prices which are excessive and non-transparent. Other agencies either do not charge fees at all or do so on the basis of the distribution costs rather than usage. And lastly, by forcing data vendors to cut off the data feeds to any financial institutions which refuse to enter into a direct license with Standard & Poor's. We're still waiting for the Commission's decision. This will join a long line of cases testing the ability of rights holders to refuse access to essential data and the terms, especially price, on which data should be licensed. The issue of access to data and competition law has increasingly come to the fore in recent years. Technological developments in how data is delivered, such as the internet, have led to a situation where, in today's information society, there is an expectation, a sense of entitlement, to have access to information that is free and immediate. There may be an information overload in some respects, but access to information that is valuable is still, in fact, pretty limited and often closely controlled. And it's usually that information that a business data user needs in order to drive its business. The starting point in law is that firms are allowed to contract with whomsoever they wish. This is also true for dominant companies. However, where a company, a dominant company, holds an input, such as data, that is essential to enable newcomers and other innovators to compete, the argument is that a refusal to allow access on reasonable terms can potentially put a break on innovation and hence on competition, and so can harm consumers. In many member states and in some industries, this problem has been overcome by establishing regulatory regimes which require access to be granted to infrastructures on reasonable, non-discriminatory terms. In other areas, the European Commission has begun to develop competition law to cover refusals to allow reasonable access to a facility which is essential for competing on the downstream market, starting with physical assets such as ports and then intellectual property rights and data. However, competition law recognises that there can be perfectly reasonable explanations for a refusal, for example, a lack of creditworthiness or a shortage of capacity, and that a data holder could well have invested heavily in developing and maintaining its data and should be entitled to recoup its investment and make a reasonable profit. We risk undermining the incentive to innovate altogether if free riders can simply take advantage of investments made by others. So a balance needs to be achieved. The European Court has also made clear that Article 102 doesn't cover the mere ownership of intellectual property rights, but can apply to their own proper use. And so, in exceptional circumstances, Article 102 will oblige the data holder to supply third parties, even where the data holder has IP protection. And Ronit will talk more about what this means in practice in a moment. So, a number of questions often arise about the scope of compulsory supply. The answers to these largely depend on the facts, and we won't be able to answer them all definitively today. But Ronit will talk us through the legal principles involved in considering them further. 
What types of data have been investigated to date? Well, this potentially affects data in all its forms. However, in recent years, there have been a number of key battlegrounds, which I'll run through briefly now. One of the first cases, considering data under Article 102, involved the data about users of a telephone service in Belgium, which were held by the dominant telecoms company, Belgacom. The Commission investigated claims that Belgacom's prices were excessive and discriminatory. Belgacom eventually agreed to reduce its prices by more than 90% so that it recovered only its costs plus a reasonable profit margin. Airline and travel data has also come under the spotlight. Of particular value is the fare and flight data supplied by airlines to travel agents and consumers, often via global distribution systems. The European Commission recognised this in its review of the Travelport Worldspan merger. It found that obtaining full content, in particular the lowest fares, was crucial to the GDSs, or they would risk losing customers. And so, GDSs were forced to give significant discounts to airlines in return for full data content. In fact, airline data is one area where there is some specific regulation. A code of conduct requiring the non-discriminatory <coughs> supply of information by airlines through computer reservation systems. Another area of scrutiny has been healthcare data, such as pharmaceutical sales data, which the Commission examined in the IMS Health case, and more about that later. We have also seen litigation over mapping data. In 2002, Get Mapping took, ordnance survey, um, took on ordnance survey in the High Court for leveraging its dominant position for mapping data into the related imagery market. Get mapping lost, largely because Ordnance Survey's strategy could be um, objectively justified. Sports data has also been fiercely contested. For example, pre-race data for horse races in the dispute between the British Horse Racing Board and at the races. And again, that's something Ronit will, will explore in further detail. And that brings us up to date with financial data. This includes financial market data. In other words, the quote and trade data for financial instruments. The Commission examined these markets in reviewing the mergers of Reuters and Tellerate and then Thomson and Reuters. Most recently, the Commission has also looked at um, financial reference data, in particular the identification codes for securities in its investigation into Standard & Poor's, which I just mentioned. And the Commission is also currently investigating Reuters instrument codes to see whether customers can map these to the codes of other data feed suppliers. If not, then the Commission is concerned that customers could effectively be tied into taking Thomson Reuters real-time data feeds. So, why is data often caught by Article 102? Well, Article 102 only applies where a company has a dominant position in a relevant market. What is a dominant position? The acid test is whether there is market power and the ability to act independently on the market. This takes into account a wide range of fa uh, factors such as buyer power and um, entry, pa entry barriers. But in practice, the assessment of dominance will start by looking at the market position of the allegedly dominant company, which requires the relevant market to be defined. This essentially involves looking at two key elements the relevant goods or services, and the geographic extent of the market. The key issue 
is the extent to which other goods or services may be substitutes for those under consideration. Broadly speaking, if other products are substitutes, they are considered to belong to the same product market. Article 102 often comes into play in relation to data rights because of the uniqueness of much of the data, which means that data rights holders can relatively easily and quickly gain a high market share in a narrow market and face little or no competition on that market because little or no other data is substitutable and because you may need to take into account each of the potential uses of the data when analysing possible substitutes. A data holder will usually argue for a broader market, which often reduces the likelihood it's dominant and can bring other potential sources of supply into the frame. However, a party seeking to gain access to data will typically want to argue for narrower markets. This can give the data holder a significant share of a smaller market, quite possibly a monopoly, making it subject to the higher standards of conduct under Article 102. However, a note of caution, Whichever side you're on, it's important to take a longer-term view of market definition, just in case what works for you in one situation unnecessarily restricts your commercial strategy in other areas. In some cases, market definition will have already been carried out by the courts or competition regulators. And this brings us neatly on to considering the narrow approach taken in defining data markets in recent years. In the At The Races case, the relevant market was for the supply of UK pre-race data to those in the horse racing industry that require such information for the services they provide their customers, in particular bookmakers and producers of TV channels or internet sites relating to horse racing, to all countries outside the UK and Ireland. This illustrates the wide range of factors that can be relevant. Here, the information in the data who was going to use the data, and how and where they were going to use it. Even in IMS Health, <coughs> where the upstream market for German regional sales data services was not that narrow, the subject matter of the proceedings, a structure for inputting pharmaceutical sales data, was very specific. It was the particular way IMS had grouped together communities of doctors, pharmacies and patients in Germany into 1,860 geographic areas that NDC sought access to. The Commission has also adopted a, a narrow approach to defining financial data markets. In Reuters Tellerate, the Commission identified a relevant market for the supply of real-time market data, suggesting that this could be further subdivided according to asset classes, such as derivatives or commodities. And in Thomson Reuters, the Commission took an even narrower approach, focusing on discrete content sets. Market research had indicated that these were not regarded as being substitutable by data users, as each type of content met different and well-defined needs, and they were often sold separately. The Commission identified a range of data-related markets, including real-time market data sold through desktop products and workstations, real-time data feeds, market data platforms, and various different types of data, each giving detailed information about the company or, for example, the prices and volumes of the securities traded. Most recently in Standard & Poor's, the Commission has examined reference data, <coughs> suggesting that there could be a distinct market 
for the ISIN codes for US securities. This seems at odds with its statements in the Thomson Reuters decision that it was not evident that financial instrument codes such as Reuters' own code represented separate product markets, but at the end of 2009, the Commission nonetheless launched an investigation into Reuters' codes. So these two decisions may bring welcome clarification about the approach to, to um, defining identifier markets. So, in summary, data markets are generally defined very narrowly, and this will take into account exactly what information the data contains, how it's used, who uses it, and the way in which it's delivered or sold. So, looking ahead, what might be on the horizon? I think we can expect more cases about sports data. Sports rights are always fiercely contested and hugely valuable. Perhaps also challenges over airline and travel data. It's a fiercely competitive market also, particularly following Google's acquisition of flight information provider ITA software last July. In fact, Google is, Google is already being investigated by the Commission following allegations that it's abused its dominant position in online search by giving preferential treatment to its own um, services and by placing restrictions on the portability of online advertising campaign data to competing advertising platforms. However, the current front line in the battle between data holders and data users is financial data. The decision in Standard & Poor's is eagerly awaited, but the Commission is under no strict deadline to complete its investigation. It will be interesting to see how the Commission defines any markets for identifiers and how it approaches the issues of data supply and the terms on which financial data is to be licensed under Article 102. Those who use ISINs are likely to be monitoring this case very closely because it could influence what they pay for the identification codes in future, not just to standard and pause. And an infringement decision would open the door to bring actions for damages to recover any losses, including overpayments made, resulting from any abusive conduct by Standard & Poor's. It will also be interesting to see in this market what, if any, impact the decision taken by some industry players to stop charging for such data will have in the longer term. For example, Bloomberg made its own proprietary symbology available for free in 2009. And building on this, there are also calls to standardize reference <coughs> data and remove licensing restrictions. Standardization can bring significant benefits to an industry, but care needs to be taken that how any standards are set and accessed complies with the competition law rules. And this becomes particularly complicated where there are IP rights. But that's a topic for another conference. What's clear is that access to data will continue to feature as one of the key and most controversial competition law battlegrounds. So I'll now let Ronnie talk us through the main cases and, the, um, and what we can learn through the, um, the decisional practice of the courts and the commission. You'll have to excuse me today, I'm a bit croaky, so I hope you can all hear me. 
So I'm just going to um, develop some of the themes that Rachel introduced in, in her talk. Um, and I'm going to do this by looking at these key topics on uh, supply of data and the competition law implications. So the first, the first topic which I'll be focusing on is the circumstances under which a data holder is compelled by competition law to make supplies to customers, um, whether they be existing customers or potential customers, future customers. And I'll have a look at the case law, um, and I'll also be considering the relevance of IP rights to the competition law analysis. And secondly, I'll move on to consider what the cases say where a data holder wishes to commercialize the, a database. Um, what, does, what, what are the implications under competition law as to the charges that can be made? And, and that was touched on earlier this afternoon. So coming first to uh, refusal to supply, which is a category of abuse, as Rachel mentioned, um, Rachel's already given you the, the starting point, which is that even dominant undertakings um, have the right to deal with whom, whomsoever they wish. That's right in general, unless certain conditions prevail. Um, and you see that in Advocate Jacob's uh, um, uh, opinion. The second key principle, which I personally think... Um, uh, sometimes gets lost in the cases that we see coming through that are brought, but it's certainly very clear from, from the judgments, is that there must be an impediment to competition for a refusal to supply to be abusive. I should be clear, I'm talking in general terms. This, this applies beyond data. This is the, the general principles of law. Um, now, to say that competition law says there must be an impediment before it says something is an abuse... Um, might, might sound like a statement of the obvious, like saying inflation's going up or um, something of the sort. But actually, it is an important point because it acts as a control on unwarranted incursions into the conduct of dominant undertakings. Um, and, uh, and what you see are dominant undertakings complaining that when they don't... Uh, sorry, the, the customers of dominant undertakings, if they don't like the terms of supply... Um, you see a number of cases where they say, well, this is all constructive refusal um, because we don't want to deal with you on these terms. And often the answer is, well, is there a distortion of competition? Um, that's clear from the judgment of uh, Roth J in the Intercare and Pfizer case, which um, I couldn't resist mentioning because it was a recent win. And uh, in that case, um, it's an, that's an interim judgment uh, that the case is rolling on. But there, the judge said uh, that the case involved a retail chemist asking for a supply of a particular oncology drug. And um, the, the condition of supply was provision of certain evidence, information, evidence of hospital contracts. And they said, well, we're we, we not going to supply you with this information, so you're constructively refusing to supply us with the drug. And uh, what the judge says in very clear terms, it's a useful judgment, is that there was no distortion of competition because Pfizer, the manufacturer of the drug, wasn't trying to gain an advantage for itself. It wasn't um, competing as a, as a retail chemist. Um, it... 
and it was treating all the chemists, these are chemists who um, supply patients at home, home care providers, it was treating all home care providers in the same way. They all had to provide the same sort of evidence in order to get supply of the drug. And the judge said there's no distortion of competition in those circumstances, so there was no abuse. And I've also given you there um, uh, the, the quote from the Court of Appeal in uh, the At the Races case uh, to the same effect. There has to be a distortion. So th the question is, um, in, in what circumstances um, is, is the dominant undertaking required to, to supply if there is, if there is a, a distortion? So here I just cover the categories of um, abusive refusal. The first one is the United Brands category, uh, which is quite well known, and that's um, stopping supply to a long-standing customer. It's, a, it's an old case. It's 1973, so it's a, a well-established principle, um, which many of you will be familiar with. Um, I, I would just mention that the second bullet point there... Um, in the Pfizer judgment, the judge said, well, actually, if you look carefully at United Brands, it wasn't just a case about cutting off supplies to an existing customer. What was going on there was United Brands, um, was, uh, they stopped supplying uh, bananas to a Danish company. And the reason they did that is because Olsen, uh, the Danish company, had been promoting a rival brand of bananas and the refusal was targeted at Olsen. It was punishment, effectively, um, and could have led to its elimination from the market. So there are quite particular uh, circumstances there. So one needs to be careful about saying long-standing customers have total protection under competition law. Um, it's it's, it's a, a more subtle point than that. Another case that dealt with... Um, cutting off supplies to an existing customer is commercial solvents. Again, another locus classicus um, that, that is well established in competition law. Um, and in that case, uh, commercial solvents uh, stopped supplying um, an existing customer because it entered the downstream market itself. I'm not going to attempt to say the name of the, the, the chemical raw materials involved, but um, it, Zoja was uh, an, a customer in Italy and uh, they were manufacturing a derivative drug. Commercial solvents started competing with it at that downstream level, uh, supplying the same drug, and so stopped supplying the raw material to Zoja. And that uh, was an abusive refusal to supply because it was eliminating, it had the effect of eliminating competition downstream. Um, no one could compete with commercial solvents. They were dominant in the supply of the raw material. I also mention there um, essential facilities, um, and I do that because it's relevant to data. Um, I'll come on to talk um, about why that is in a moment. Um, it's not uh, formally a separate category, um, but there are, there's, there's, a, there's a series of cases um, where refusal to give access to an essential facility has been found to be abusive. 
there's no clear dividing line between essential facilities cases and any other sort of product or service. Um, but often, one's dealing with infrastructure, like a port, someone seeking access to it, or as I said, it might be data or a license. Um, the, the analysis one tends to see in the cases is that um, you have a dominant undertaking controlling the essential facility. It may be that that undertaking is trying to exclude competition in a downstream market where it itself is present. Um, and uh, in the case law, one sees that refusal will be abusive where it eliminates all competition on the part of a would-be customer and, and this is, this is really important, that the essential facility is indispensable, which means there are no actual or potential substitutes. That customer has to go via that port. Um, and just lastly, uh, Rachel already touched on objective justification being a defence. So that's a very brief canter through uh, the framework, the context um, for the abuse of refusal to supply. Now I'm going to turn to um, refusal to license um, intellectual property rights. And um, we've heard a lot about um, the types of rights one might be talking about, the types of IPRs. As far as competition law is concerned, um, this is an additional category to those I've already mentioned, so essential facilities, long-standing customers, and so on. Now, special rules apply, um, and, and, and Rachel has already touched on this, because competition law recognises that protection is given to the holder of an IPR. So there's a tension there between the exclusive rights which are accorded to, say, a patent holder and the need to ensure free competition. And competition law attempts to find a balance between those two conflicting interests. So cognizant of that competition law sets a higher threshold um, by setting a different test um, when the case being brought is that um, it, it wants access, a customer wants access to a license which is IP protected. Um, and that's been developed in a number of landmark cases, um, which I'm uh, going to turn to now. Uh, so the first one is McGill. This goes back to 95. Um, so this is not new law. Um, but it, it's an interesting one because it really established the point. Um, McGill wanted to produce a comprehensive listings guide in Ireland um, with uh, listings input from uh, the three uh, TV channels. Um, it, this goes back to the days when we had far fewer channels. And each of the TV companies, it was RTE, ITV and BBC, um, each television company published its own guide and they didn't want to grant a license to McGill um, which wanted to publish a comprehensive guide with all of them and the TV companies argued that um, they weren't obliged to under competition law because the listings material was copyright protected and that they said was a complete answer it was a shield to article 102 there couldn't be an abuse and the court of justice in Europe said that wasn't right um, the exercise of an exclusive right by the proprietor may, in exceptional circumstances, involve abuse. And here, those exceptional circumstances were that the refusal to give the information to uh, McGill in reliance on the national copyright protection 
prevented the emergence of a new product. There were no comprehensive listings because of the conduct of the TV companies. Um, and there was potential consumer demand. People would like to have a comprehensive guide. So in that way, the TV companies reserved that secondary market in TV listings to themselves. And competition was wholly excluded. It was impossible. So it, it attracted quite a lot of criticism at the time, this judgment. It was fairly groundbreaking, um, but it was an extreme set of facts. Now, moving on then to the next um, case that develops and builds on this principle, IMS Health. Now, this is, this is um, bang on point for today's topic um, because this is a case about refusal of access to a copyright-protected database. Um, Rachel's already mentioned it was the 1860 brick structure case uh, for pharma sales data in Germany. Now, um, IMS's competitors attempted to use similar structures for the sales data, and IMS, relying on its, its um, IP protection rights, um, got, got injunctions in Germany to restrain the use uh, of similar structures by competitors. Those competitors, the rivals to IMS, complained to the Commission and said um, that the refusal to license um, this 1860 structure meant that rivals um, couldn't present sales data in a way which was acceptable to customers without infringing copyright. Um, the Commission agreed and they said what's happened is this structure has become a de facto industry standard. Pharma companies have become locked in um, and they can't switch away. It's economically unviable for them to do so. So the refusal to give them access um, is likely to eliminate all competition in that sales data market. Um, and the Court of Justice agreed and they said... Um, it, the, um, the, the failure, the refusal to grant a license protected by IP law can't in itself constitute an abuse, but it does in exceptional circumstances. And um, you've got the exceptional circumstances test set out there, which is that it prevents the emergence of a new product for which there is potential consumer demand, it's unjustified, and excludes competition on a secondary market. And this is where they found the balance between the two interests I was talking about. Um, and they made it clear in that case that this wasn't a protection for rivals seeking simply to duplicate the structure, um, but rivals attempting to bring a new product to market. So then uh, we come to Microsoft, um, which is a case which has attracted a lot of publicity. And um, in that case, the Commission found that Microsoft had engaged in a refusal to supply competitors with interoperability information, um, which um, prevented them from competing with Microsoft's own products in the work group server operating systems market. And Microsoft was fined just under 500 million euro for that, uh, along with another abuse. Um, the Commission assumed it proceeded on the premise that the interoperability data was IP protected, and so this fell within the McGill category of cases and, uh, and IMS. 
Um, so the, the Commission said that we're being favourable to Microsoft in a sense because we're applying the, the highest threshold we can on refusal to supply. And um, I've set it out for you there on the slide. It's the same test as that set out um, in IMS Health. So um, it must be indispensable, the, uh, the, the license which is sought. It must exclude any effective competition on a neighbouring market and prevents the appearance of a new product for which there's potential consumer demand. Um, so not terribly interesting in that sense, but actually when you look at how it was applied, it did move the law on. Um, condition one on the previous slide, indispensability. Um, it's clear that the court and the commission were in extremely influenced by the fact that this was a very rare case. Um, Microsoft had a 90% market share on the client PC operating systems market um, Windows had become a quasi-standard. Um, so Microsoft products were therefore indispensable. But um, perhaps more interestingly, having been influenced perhaps by that, what one then sees is a watering down of conditions two and three on the refusal to license test. Um, condition two uh, eliminates all competition on a downstream market. Um, the court said... Um, it's sufficient if it's liable or likely to eliminate competition. Um, the Commission doesn't have to wait till all competition's been eliminated for it to act. Um, that's the first point. Condition three, the new product condition. Now, this is, this is the difference between the IPR uh, line of case law and your bog-standard refusal to supply. Um, it has to prevent the emergence of a new product. Well, the court said it's sufficient, that test is met, that condition is satisfied, where it limits uh, the emergence of technological developments. And um, it said that competitors had been ham hampered from introducing systems with innovative features um, to the prejudice of consumers, and that ticked that box. So something more than duplication of the dominant undertakings product but perhaps not that much more. So just turning to the practical implications of this case law, um, just pausing there, what does it mean for those, um, those of you who operate, have businesses who operate databases and those who seek access to them? It's very clear there's a higher threshold if you have an IPR, um, and you've heard a lot today about the types of IP rights which might apply. It's, it's worth thinking about that um, when you're confronted with these sorts of issues, um, notwithstanding the, the, the slight watering down in Microsoft. Um, if your um, database is not IP protected, then it may well be an essential facility if it's indispensable, if it is essential. Um, customers can't operate in another market without access to your data. Um, and uh, that applies if um, that customer might be excluded from the market altogether. Um, so if, um, if a database operator is prepared to um, give licenses to the data, um, then it's very important it does so on fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory FRAN terms, um, because the, there can be a constructive refusal in, in discriminating between customers. Um, if uh, the database operator is 
um, using the data itself in a downstream market, uh, then it could, it's more likely to be on a very sticky wicket um, because then one is in the commercial solvents uh, line of case law uh, if it could be said to be acting to exclude a competitor downstream. If any of this applies to your business and you take away one tip um, from this talk, I, I would say to you, think about your internal documents. Um, although competition law applies an objective test, in practice, and um, human psychology being what it is, um, internal company documents can be highly persuasive. Um, it's no coincidence that in Microsoft, there are a number of documents which suggested um, that the, the strategy not to supply the interoperability information um, was part of a conscious leveraging strategy based on its near monopoly in the client PC market. And, and I, I see that often in the comp competitional cases I've done, the impact which uh, documents which tell the story of what the business was really doing have a real impact on the judge and on the OFT. So it, 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 that's the thing I'd say to you to bear in mind. Um, I hope I just have time to cover uh, charging for data briefly. Uh, I'm just um, moving on to that because um, the cases I've been discussing are cases where companies don't want to grant access to their data, like Microsoft, um, often relying on um, IP protection. But there are others who may, may look to commercialize to make money out of the data. So the question then is um, whether competition law might intervene to stop that company from taking advantage of its monopoly position or dominant position in the data and uh, charging too much for it. Um, I just say as an aside, given um, what I've been discussing to this point, um, making supply subject to unreasonable terms uh, can amount to a constructive refusal, but I'm now going to be looking at excessive pricing as a separate head of abuse. And I'm going to do that by reference to the At The Races case, um, which has done, done well today and ha has had a number of mentions. I'm going to talk not about Etherton Jay's uh, judgment, but about the Court of Appeal. Um, this was a case about the supply of pre-race data um, by the BHB, the governing body of horse racing in Britain, uh, to At The Races, which is effectively a broadcaster of uh, racing supplying websites and channels, TV channels. And um, the dispute was about um, ch uh, BHB's charges to at the races for um, supplying uh, the data to overseas bookmakers. Now, um, the BHB database didn't benefit from the database right, as we've already heard. So the courts, the English courts, proceeded on the basis that the data was an essential facility, um, which was the, the separate test I talked about earlier. So at first instance, uh, Mr. Justice Etherton held that BHB's charges were excessive, and the Court of Appeal overturned that finding. They said there was no infringement of Article 102. There was no excessive pricing. Both courts agreed on what the test is, which is um, well established in the European case law. The test is um, whether there is a relationship between the charges and the economic value of the product. Um, 
Now, um, the judge at first instance held that um, you do this by reference to what he called the competitive price. And he said um, the competitive price is um, no more or not significantly more than cost, the cost plus standard. That is cost plus a reasonable return on cost. And the Court of Appeal said in very strong terms, um, that's not the case, that's not right as a matter of principle, because Article 102 does not create a European system for determining prices. This is not price regulation by the back door. So when, when does Article 102 intervene? Well, the court said it's not just a question of the cost of supply, uh, which was the uh, approach of Etherton J, um, but you need to look at what's the value to the purchaser. In s some ways, a fairly common sense approach. What, what value does the market bear? And, and the Court of Appeal even went on to say, you know, BHB's charges might seem unfair, but that doesn't, uh, that's, that's not sufficient to establish an abuse under competition law. And, they s and uh, the last bullet point on the slide they were particularly influenced by the fact that the principal object of Article 102, they said, is to protect consumers. And here, there was no evidence of detrimental effect on the punters at the level of the consumer. Actually, what this is, is a battle over revenue at the higher stage of the chain between BHB and at the races, fighting for rents. And uh, just drilling a little further down into that judgment, the Court of Appeal said um, that the value of um, the data, the pre-race data, um, uh, is derived from the value of the primary product, racing, racing, uh, the pictures of racing. And um, the, the, the Court of Appeal said um, the value to at the races is based on the revenue which it makes from its customers in the downstream market by supplying the pictures of racing and the data that goes along with it. Um, and that last uh, sub-bullet there um, is quite interesting. Uh, evidence had been put before the Court of Appeal that there had been a massive hike in the price of the pre-race data in, in recent years um, because BHB changed its strategy, its approach. And uh, that wasn't fatal to the BHB's defense. It didn't, just because the prices had leapt up, um, it didn't mean that they were excessive. Um, so there may be some comfort in there for those of you um, seeking to charge for data. Um, that was all I was proposing to say about at the races. Just um, as, a, as a postscript, I'd mention um, the, the Microsoft judgment. Um, given that I've been discussing the uh, refusal to supply head of abuse, um, the Commission subsequently fined Microsoft almost 900 million euro for failing to provide interoperability information as it had been required by the Commission on reasonable and non-discriminatory terms. Um, but they didn't say what those terms were. What's a reasonable price for... Uh, the license which Microsoft was being compelled to give to grant. So um, that judgment's awaited in that. Um, it might have some in interesting things to say um, uh, in Microsoft's appeal of that decision. So watch this space. Finally, to conclude, um, just drawing um, some thoughts together on 
uh, ch the charging point. Um, uh, if, if there is a risk of dominance, the data isn't substitutable, as Rachel explained. It's worth doing a robust analysis in setting charges um, if you think there is likely to be challenge or attack. Um, consider instructing experts to have a look at the charges and how they've been set. Um, certainly consider the, the value of the data to the purchasers. What's, what, what's its economic value downstream? Um, it may be that this can be done by useful benchmarks, comparators. Um, that may be um, similar forms of data, internal supply of data, um, or uh, 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 data in other countries, uh, comparable supply of data elsewhere. Um, and the, the last point I'll leave you with is um, I hope you've, you've um, seen from that from that uh, canter through at the races, if, if you'll excuse the pun, um, that it's very difficult to establish uh, excessive pricing uh, because that's not really what... Competition laws are rather nervous and regulators are rather nervous about that. Um, but if prices are discriminatory, that's a lot easier to establish. So that's the thing to watch out for in setting your charges, ensuring that they're non-discriminatory uh, as between your customers. Thank you very much.